Okay, we are in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, if you'll open there with me. And God in his sovereignty has us in this chapter because I, I know that this is a word not only for the entire church, but it's for my generation. It's for the generation that is, is coming up um, and it's a call to, and I don't mean this uh, in, a, in a way to, that I, I want to offend, but it's a call to grow up. It's a call to take responsibility, to be a part of what the Lord is doing. And I recall a, a, a story of a, a young man, he was dating a gal, and whenever they'd go out to lunch with this gal's parents, the, that gal's father would always take the check and pay for the meal. But once they got married, the first time they went out to dinner, his father-in-law took the check and slid it over to him. It's time for us to grow up. It's time for us to take part in the work that God is doing here in Calvary Central if we believe that Calvary Central is our home. So in chapter 8 and now we'll see in chapter 9, Paul is dealing really more with the principle of generosity and the reality that our identity in Christ should be one of generosity. God so loved the world that he gave. And in chapter 8, Paul is calling that church in Corinth, the church that had been uniquely financially blessed, to take care of its own, to bless the church in Jerusalem who was going through famine and persecution, to bless them financially and take care of their needs. He saw it as an opportunity for the Greeks in Corinth, the Gentile believers, to show their love for Jewish believers. And he compared the church in Corinth to the churches in Macedonia, which included Thessalonica, Berea, and Philippi. All of those churches were impoverished, but they had given freely out of their lack. They had blessed the church in Jerusalem, despite the fact that they themselves were going through a trial of great affliction. But Paul says, out of their affliction, we saw the abundance of their joy, And in their deep poverty abounded the riches of their liberality. That in their great lack, they had discovered something that it is better to give than to receive. But the church in Corinth, they they hadn't quite caught this yet. They had told Paul a year prior to this, yes, we want to give. But a year had gone by and they had given nothing And Paul says, the churches in Macedonia, they were imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift. And now Paul begs the church in Corinth, just do what God has called you to do. Not out of compulsion, but out of love for your brothers and sisters in Christ. See, Paul is calling the church in Corinth to discover what the churches in Macedonia had discovered, that giving is so rewarding, so joyous, so fulfilling, that we should jump at the chance to care for our brothers and sisters in Christ. 
That's the work God desires to do in us. And again, it all comes back to our identity in Jesus. We're the body of Christ. And if Jesus is generous, if Jesus came down and took on an impoverished state and gave of himself, gave all that he had to the church, should we not do the same for one another? Our God is so generous. It would stand to reason that he wants his kids to be generous as well. If we are ambassadors of Christ, representatives of Jesus, our lives must reflect that same generosity. So let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 9 as Paul continues down this road. And again, let's look at the entire chapter here, only 15 verses. Now concerning the ministering to the saints, it is necessary, is the word there, for me to write to you. For I know your willingness about which I boast of you to the Macedonians. The Achaia was ready a year ago and your, drill, your zeal was stirred up, has stirred up the majority. Yet I have sent the brethren lest our boasting of you should be in vain in this respect, that as I said, you may be ready, lest if some Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to mention you, should be ashamed of this confident boasting. Therefore I thought that it's necessary to exhort the brethren to go to you ahead of time and prepare your generous gift beforehand, which you had previously promised that it may be ready as a matter of generosity and not as a grudging obligation. But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or out of necessity, for God loves a what? A cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you always having all sufficiency in all things may have an, may have an abundance for every good work. As it is written, he has dispersed abroad, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Now may he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food supply and multiply the seed you have sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness while you are enriched in everything for all liberality which causes thanksgiving through us to God. For the administration of this service not only supplies the needs of the saints but also is abounding through many thanksgivings to God while through the proof of the ministry... They glorify God for the obedience of your confession to the gospel of Christ and for your liberal sharing with them and all men and by your, their prayer for you who long for you because of the exceeding grace of God in you, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. So Paul writes to the church in Corinth and says, you, you are willing, but willing is not the same as doing. You're talking about giving, 
but that's not the same as actually doing it. Your heart is there, but right now your hands don't match your heart. In Matthew 25, Jesus shares a parable about talents. And the, the wise servants that invest their talents well, what does the master say to those servants? He says, well said, good and faithful servants. Well thought, good and faithful servants. No, he says, well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into what? The joy of the Lord. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. Here's where I want to land. Talk is cheap. Talk is cheap because of supply and demand. There is plenty of talk in this world. There is not a whole lot of follow through. We love to talk. I, I had mentioned a few weeks ago that we love to complain. It just feels good. There's something in us that just likes to wallow in self-pity. We also like to gossip. But another thing we like to do is just talk. We like to talk about how we're going to start a budget and get out of debt. We like to talk about how we're going to get our, our diet right and exercise and get things um, where they need to be. We like to talk about getting involved in the ministry. We like to talk and talk and talk and talk. But without follow through, that's meaningless. It's interesting. In Amos chapter 1, verse 1, we read the words of Amos, who was among the sheep breeders of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel. Do you see a strange connection there? The words of Amos, which he what? He saw. What in the world does that mean? Well, how did God create the universe? God spoke. God said, let there be light. And what happened? There was light. Words which he saw, they were tangible. John 1, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. John 1, 14, and the word became what? Flesh, and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. What is this connection between God's word and substance? See, God's words and his actions are inseparable. They're one and the same. When God speaks, it is so. So God speaks the universe into existence. Amos' words were the words of God, so he saw them. That's how you see words. It's because God's word is right and true. When he speaks, we aren't left to wonder if it will come to pass. Are we the same? Do our words have weight? Or have people discovered that when we make a commitment, it's uh, maybe, maybe not. It's just not the same with us. Our word, our promises, our commitments, we break them all the time. We stand before the one that we love and we commit our lives to them until death do us part. And then what happens? Things get difficult. 
It's not convenient anymore. And then our commitment only goes as far as our convenience. And once that commitment starts to hurt, once it draws a little bit of blood, once it involves some sacrifice, what happens? From a worldly sense, we bail. It's the result of living in a culture, culture that just isn't willing to suffer anymore. The church in Corinth when they committed to Paul to give, I believe they wholeheartedly believed that they were going to. Just like Peter told Jesus, wherever you go, I will follow. I will die by your side. He was willing. And Jesus said to him, before the roaster, the roaster, the rooster, before the rooster crows three times, you will what? You'll deny me. Peter, that's what your words are worth. I'm not saying you're not willing, Peter, but I know the truth. So often our words don't match up with our actions. And that's what Paul is calling the church in Corinth into. He's not saying, I'm commanding you to give. He's saying, God has led you to this point. God has called you to give. You want to give. Your spirit is willing, but now it's time for the hard part. Do something about it. Guys, we talk about getting healthy, we talk about saving money, we talk about quitting smoking or quitting drinking, we talk about spending more time in prayer, we talk and we talk and we talk, but again, talk is cheap. And our flesh is sometimes just satisfied with talk in place of action. Because it doesn't cost anything. I mean, we're just a few months outside of January 1st and how many people made New Year's resolutions and it felt good when you made the resolution, but here we are a couple months later and are we still following through? 1 John 3.18, the Apostle John writes, My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in what? Deed and in truth. So let me make it practical. We can say we love our church family, but if we don't equally take on the responsibility of supporting our church family, how deep is that love? And again, I'm I'm speaking to my generation here. The needs of the many at Calvary Central are taken care of by the needs of the few. And most of the few, they have gray hair. That's the best way that, or no hair. Um, But that's the the best way that I can put it. We're living in in grandpa and grandma's house. And I just want to encourage you now, again, there's going to be a few different categories of people. There are going to be people that say, you know what, I'm going to come, um, I'm going to enjoy, and then I'm going to leave, and I have no heart to give. That's fine, I'm I'm not going to, Um, lay a guilt trip on you. That's not Paul's heart in this message. That's not my heart. But then there's two other groups of people. Those that God has called to give. And you know you want to play a part in loving the central family and taking care of one another. You just haven't made it practical yet. The other group is as Pastor John would call it, the willing to be willing. My heart's not there but I want my heart to be there. 
but I don't know how to change my heart. I think these words are, are for you. It's been said you can give without loving, but you can never love without giving. A generous people testify of a generous God. And Paul says he wants their giving to be a matter of just cheerful generosity and not as a reluctant obligation. He wants it to be the result of the Holy Spirit's work in their lives and not because of guilt or shame. One author, and I, and I completely agree with this, one author wrote that Christian fundraising has reached the end of its tether after it has adequately informed of the need. Did you catch that? This is all Christian fundraising should be. Here's our need. It's up to you to do with it what you want. Now that's been grossly perverted nowadays. The beginning and the end of Christian fundraising should be presenting the need and the convincing is the terrain of the Holy Spirit and we dare not get in the way of the Holy Spirit's work in someone's life. Once the need is presented, it is the Holy Spirit that does the convincing. And our responsibility is to simply be obedient to the Holy Spirit. Jesus promised then, right? If we walk in the Spirit, if we walk where he leads, if we abide in him, then our joy will be made full. And that's where I think a lot of us are are struggling and wondering where the joy in our Christian walk is. We're just not living that generous life. And I understand why we live in a culture of consumerism. And guys, when last week when I say, who can I pray for who's just struggling with debt? Living maybe a little bit irresponsibly, spending more than you earn, and because of that, that's choking out your ability, not simply to give to Calvary Central, but just to be generous. Because again, what is conformity to this world? It's living with a closed fist. And in scripture, a closed fist and a hard heart, they go together. And we are just naturally, it's our natural bent to want to take and take and take. But the transforming work of the spirit in our lives gives us open hands. And we're wondering, who can I bless? Who can I give to not just finances, but time and energy? Who needs me? That's the life of the disciple of Christ. Not, okay, how much is enough? Like that rich young ruler. Well, what, what does it mean to, to love my neighbor? Because I'm not supposed to love everybody, right? Just give me a list of people. Is it just the person to the left of me and the right of me? And Jesus sets him straight. If we're asking, well, how much is enough? We're asking the wrong question. God, what do you want from me? I want to be used by you. Now, again, I I completely understand that there are churches that no longer trust the work of the Spirit and they've turned to manipulation to raise funds. I realize this has been misused 
And there's many pastors that put on their used car salesman persona and they pass the offering plate around over and over and over again. I've been there. We took the youth when I was in youth ministry to a, a Christian concert and that plate got passed around so many times. And every time it was a guilt trip and I saw the kids starting to like look in their pockets to see if they had something to give. And I'm like, this is not right. But guys, the mega church phenomenon, the churches you see in the media, the pastors that you see who, who fall because of uh, pride and arrogance and ego, guys, that is just a small segment of the bigger church. Most churches are barely 50 people. On average, the church is 50, individual churches around 50 people. This mega church, ultra wealthy pastor, that is just a small portion of the evangelical church today. And most of those churches are having a difficult time making ends meet. But I get it. I know that giving in the church is misunderstood. And I know that because someone forwarded me a video of a well-known pastor doing his very best to convince his congregation to purchase for him a second jet. Because one jet is not enough. You need two jets. Then I saw another video of a pastor who was laying into his congregation because they did not buy him a Movado watch for Christmas. And that's disgusting. I get that. But let's not err on the other side and forget that we're part of a family and we're all called to help meet one another's needs. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 2, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 through 9. But this I say, Paul writes, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or out of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. See, this is what separated the churches in Macedonia from the church in Corinth. They believed this spiritual truth. They believed it. It changed how they lived. It's the same thing Paul taught the elders in Ephesus in Acts 20, 35. He says, I have shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Do we believe that? Now, we may nod our heads and say yes and amen and then go on living the same way, and that is just talk. Do we really believe that that's where joy is found? Do we really believe that's where we reflect Christ is as we step into his life of generosity? There's a story of a a king who went into his village to greet his subjects, and he wandered through the streets, and as he was doing that, he came across a beggar sitting by the roadside, and the beggar eagerly held out his hand, sure that the king would give him something of value. Instead, the king looked down at him and made it the most unique request. He asked the beggar if he would please give him something. Taken aback, the beggar remembered that his pocket was full of grains of rice that he was saving for dinner. He finished 
He fished around and he pulled out three little grains of rice and he dropped them into the king's hand. At the end of the day, when the beggar poured out what he had received for the day, he found to his astonishment at the bottom of his bowl three grains of solid gold and he had wished that he had given the king everything. I don't think any of us are going to get to the end of our lives and wish we had just bought one more thing. Man, I wish I would have upgraded that that iPhone 27. I I wish I would have just bought one more pair of headphones or... But I think we may get to the end of our life and just say, God, I wish I would have gave more. Gave gave you more of myself. Because there's a sowing and reaping principle Now, I am not saying, please hear me, because again, this has been misused. I am not saying, sow into Calvary Central and you will become wealthy and healthy and God will bless you 10 times over. That is not what I'm saying. But I am saying, God does not need our resources, but he wants our trust. He wants our devotion. He challenges our faith with one of the things we hold dearest to our hearts, and that is our money. Are we willing to put our money and our resources in his hands and let him do what he wants with it? That's a question we know the answer to right now. We can talk about a lot of high-in-the-sky things, but that's tangible, that's real. Does God have my finances, or am I the God over my finances? See, my faith in God, and my faith in His promises, they're immediately and continually tested every day in this area. And I want to make sure we understand this isn't just the words of some pastor. This is a biblical principle. So let me give you some more verses. Proverbs 19, 17. 17, He who has pity on the poor lends to the Lord, and he will pay back what he has given. Proverbs eleven twenty four. There is one who scatters, yet increases more, and there is one who withholds more than is right. But it leads to poverty. The generous soul will be made rich, and he who waters will also be watered himself. Now, some of you may say, that's Old Testament stuff. That's what we say when we don't want to be obedient to something that maybe we see in the Old Testament. That's just Old Testament stuff. That's the law. Well, let me give you Luke chapter 6, verse 38. Give, and it will be given back to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use it will be measured back to you. So what does that mean? I don't know. I don't know exactly what that looks like for each one of us, but I want to find out because it sounds like there's a a loving promise in there. When we give ourselves over to the Lord and his will, we find joy in that in all areas. Again, I don't know what that promise looks like, but I know it's beyond simply uh, being financially well off. It's about our relationship with him. Paul says, and God is able to make all grace abound 
toward you that you always having all sufficiency in all things may have an abundance for every good work. All grace, all sufficiency, all things. It seems pretty exhaustive that God is able to do all things. So I want to focus in on something real quick here. God loves a what? Now, now we may ask, what do you give a God who has everything, right? What, what can we possibly give to God? God tells us one thing that he absolutely loves. He loves a cheerful giver. I know you've heard this before, that word cheerful is where we get our word hilarious. It means glad, joyful, merry. God loves someone who gives, like the churches in Macedonia, They're falling over one another, begging Paul, take this, because I know there's joy in it. Take this gift. See, the why matters to God. So it is about doing, right? We've landed on that. Quit talking, let's start doing. But the why matters. The motives matter to God. The condition of our heart matters to God. What if we can honestly say, right now my heart isn't there? That's being honest. God can work with that. If you're sitting here this morning and you're like, my heart's not there, I love my money. I love seeing it grow. Or I love buying things that I can't afford. I'm caught in that trap. And I can't seem to dig myself out. But to be honest, I have no desire to change. That's a good place to be in the sense that you are being honest. I was talking to a gentleman that came by the church last week or a couple weeks ago. And he was broken. He was strung out. And I'm always blessed because a lot of times people come by here and they're looking for cash so that they can get their next fix. But it always blesses me when someone comes by here and they are genuinely just looking for prayer. And he was a young man, probably in his early 20s. And I asked him, I said, do you have any goals? Like, what do you look forward to in life? And he said, I want to have my own place. I want a job. I want a family. And I said, do you want to be clean? And he looked at me and he said, no. And he was just being honest. And I said, until that's addressed, none of those other things are coming. And so we prayed together because he was aware of the hardness of his heart. And he can't change his own heart, but God can. So if you think about that young man, please pray for him. But that's the heart that we all struggle with. But the first step to really letting God work in that area is to acknowledge, God, my heart is hard. Change me. Teach me. Bring me into life circumstances that will change the way I see this issue of generosity. See, that's living out the gospel, coming to God, admitting that we are helpless and we are in need of saving. That doesn't happen just when we get saved. We should be living that out daily. God, I am helpless and only you can do that work in me. Now, he may lead us into situations where we just simply need to be obedient. We may not feel like it, but we know that it's an investment in what God wants to do in our lives. 
Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 6, verse 19. We touched on this last week. Do not lay up for yourselves, what? Treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. How many of you just love moving? Moving from one house to another, one state to another. You know what stinks about moving? You touch every single thing that you own. And you're like, why do I own all this stuff? Again, it's the American way. We collect. (laughs) We have so much stuff. But Jesus says, that's not the way of my disciple. Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but instead lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart is also. Now here's the key. Again, if you're here and and you're like, my heart's just not there right now, this is why. Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and stuff. The word is mammon. It's the personification of things and money and wealth and, wealth and earthly possessions. You can't serve both. And again, I understand it. I I battle it all the time. We think that that thing will make us happy. One more thing, one more Amazon order, one more shirt, one more pair of shoes, one more, and I'm not saying we don't take care of our basic needs. But how often have we bought something and we have three perfectly good ones in the garage? But this is a different tool, right, John? I'm just kidding. John set me up with the best tools ever. So thank you, John. But that's how we are. That is the conformity that we will fight against in our culture. More, more, more. But Jesus says we can't serve that stuff in him at the same time. We can't have that mindset where, hey, just one more thing. You know, one more purchase. And that'll fill that hole. Instead, he says, serve me. Serve me. Why don't we love to give? Well, because we have another love. Why don't we love to give? Because we have another master. One that causes us to live with that closed hand instead of that open hand of generosity. And so you may ask, well, how can I change my heart? Again, you can't, but God can as you confess your sin and surrender your will to him. That is the gospel worked out in our lives and I have to do it all the time. And Paul says, God is able to make all grace abound toward you that you always having all sufficiency in all things may have an abundance for every good work. There's a fear of being generous that somehow we're gonna miss out on something. And Paul says, no, you will have an abundance of what you need. Not what you want, but what you need. Second Corinthians 9, 9 verses 10 and 11, Paul 
quotes here Isaiah 55, 10. He says, now may he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food supply and multiply the seed you have sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness while you are enriched in everything for all liberality which causes thanksgiving through us to God. So Paul's continuing this analogy of our resources being a seed. And he says, He asks, who gave us the seed? Who does our stuff belong to? Who do our finances belong to? Who gave us the seed? It was God. It's all the Lord's anyway. And he gives us more seed if we're willing to plant that seed. But how much sense, let's say you had a a farmer and an employee, and that employee was hired to plant the seed. And the farmer gave that employee just a big bag of seed, and that employee thought to himself, well, this seed's pretty expensive. I'm going to go put it in my room and keep it safe in there. And then he went back to the farmer again and said, okay, I need more seed. And the farmer thinks, that's strange. I gave him a lot. But he gives him another bag of seed, and he takes that bag of seed and puts it in his room again, puts it under his bed, and he goes back to the farmer again and says, I'm out of seed, I need more. And the farmer says, where's all the seed going? Oh, it's in my room. I hung it on the wall. I put it in the kitchen. And the farmer says, that's not what the seed was for. It was meant to be planted. Do you think he'll continue to give that employee more and more seed? Or will he say, no, that's, that's not my plan for it. I'm using, I'm giving you that seed so that you can go and bear fruit with it. Not so you can hoard it for yourself. Let me give you a, a more modern example. There's a, a pretty wealthy investor. He owns the Dallas Mavericks. Anyone know his name? Mark. Some of you guys are like, I don't care. (laughs) Mark Cuban. He was looking for, I won't get into too much detail, but he invested in a company that uh, they had designed a technology where you could do a breathalyzer on the spot. It was a breathalyzer you carried in your pocket cooked it up to your iPhone and you could breathe into it so you didn't drive drunk. And he thought, oh, this is great. He invested over a million dollars into this company. All they had was a proof of concept. It wasn't developed all the way, but he put his trust in this individual. And that individual took a million dollars and just went on a spending spree, was traveling all over the world, going to parties, spent all of the money. Mark Cuban said it is the worst investment he ever made. What if that young man went back to Mark Cuban and said, you know, I spent it all, can I have some more? It's kind of a worldly analogy, but how often do we live that way in relation to God? God gives to us so that we'll give, so that we can experience the joy that he lives in. God gives so we will give. And so that we will reflect his generosity. 
That's what the Christian life is all about. Glorifying God, exampling his nature to a world that needs to see him. As one author points out, this is what separates us from mere philanthropists. You know what a philanthropist is, right? Someone who gives a great deal of money to charity. You know what makes the Christian different than the philanthropist? We don't give out of our own strength and from our own supply. It is all about him. It is to glorify him. So guys, again, when we take responsibility for providing for the needs of our church family, we not only provide for their physical needs, but we're providing for their spiritual needs. So again, I just want to encourage you, my generation, now listen, if we haven't come to a place where we are taking part in the responsibility of caring for our family, would you just pray about it? See what the Lord would have you do. Maybe it's time to grow up. Paul says to the church in Corinth, your giving will result in the abounding thanksgivings to God. When the church in Jerusalem has heard of your generosity, your love for them, it'll encourage them. It will be build their faith and God will be glorified. That is the result of cheerful giving. I promise that's the last chapter in 2 Corinthians about giving. But again, as I said last week, I can't, I can't preach these chapters apologetically anymore. I just want to teach through God's word, let it speak, and then let the Holy Spirit do its work.